are listening to True Crime Fiction, feeding your addiction to the best of the written and the spoken word in crime. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do so for as little as £1 at patreon.com slash truecrimefiction. This week, an update on Shamima Begum, whose case we covered in episode 108, The Crime and Punishment of Shamima Begum. Shamima had left her home in London with two friends when she was 15, having been groomed by radicals to travel to Syria and become part of the Islamic State. For a more in-depth investigation, I would recommend the BBC's podcast, I Am Not a Monster, and the Shamima Begum story, which is available on iPlayer in the UK. As with all updates, the original episode will play after this, and it will tell you more about Shamima's story. For now, the update will focus on what has happened since the last episode on her. Those who support Shamima took her case to the High Court, where they appealed against the decision to strip her of British citizenship. The High Court ruled that the decision to strip her of citizenship was lawful. This does not mean that the court is necessarily saying that the decision was right, but rather that proper procedures were followed by the then Home Secretary, Sajid Javid, although the judgment did describe the decision as harsh. This means that Shamima cannot return home to her parents in London, but additionally she cannot return to Bengal, which is where her parents were born, leaving her stateless and living in a refugee camp the foreseeable future. With a general election expected this year, one avenue that Shamima and her supporters could explore is if a change of government might lead to a reversal of this ruling. One would have expected it to be possible given the leader of the Labour Party, Sir Keir Starmer, who will most likely be the next Prime Minister, is a former human rights lawyer. However, a few months ago, Starmer is quoted as saying he believed the original decision was right, a comment that is surprising given his background. But at the moment, many people are finding it difficult to recognise the Labour Party under Starmer, as it appears to be jostling with the Tories for the right to the British political ground, rather than carving out its own ground and standing on its principles. So, what's left for Shamima? There could be one more appeal to the Supreme Court, and it is likely that we will know shortly if her lawyers will be doing this. It feels as though this has to be done, partly because she has no other choice but to do this. How else can she persuade Britain that she does indeed want to be British again, unless she fights tooth and claw to regain her citizenship? Many would say she did not deserve to be stripped of it in the first place, that it was a play by Javid, who was eyeing up the possibility of leadership of the party of government at a point where it was particularly febrile and anyone with a cabinet position was fighting to be shown to be the most patriotic. A patriotism that was less about wanting the best for your country and more jingoistic and nostalgia-laden for a past that has never existed. 
a form of patriotism where a 15-year-old girl who was sex trafficked, who by the laws of her own country at the time was statutorily raped and illegally married and has had all her halt children die, is a huge threat. It feels like a particularly brittle form of patriotism coming from a country which is not at ease with either itself or its place in the world. And there are some forms of Britishness which are asthmatically wheezing away, choked on the pollution of the Industrial Revolution, not able to understand that we no longer have an empire. A country that was truly confident would be one where we can see the fact that, yes, she may well have assisted in terrorist activity, but also that when she was a child, she set in motion a series of events she could not escape from. I think a confident country, a strong country, would allow Shamima her citizenship, but when she comes back to Britain, would also have a trial for any crimes she has committed. And now, here's the original episode. Most teenage girls who dream in their bedrooms of becoming famous think they may be pop stars, perhaps actors or models. A few of them, like Malala or Greta Thunberg, do it through activism. Very few teenage girls dream of becoming a terrorist. However, this is what happened to Shamima Begum, a 15-year-old from Bethnal Green, London, who became radicalised by a school friend and travelled to Syria, joining the ISIS caliphate. The Shamima Begum story, a BBC documentary, traces Shamima's journey from shy Muslim girl struggling to find her place in a society where Islamophobia has been on the rise since Iraq war, to child bride, grieving mother, and her current state as a citizen stripped of citizenship and left in a refugee camp on the edge of a desert. This documentary does not just speak to Shamima, but several talking heads, the journalist who found her, a Canadian intelligence officer, a defence expert. Some people are vociferously against Shamima Begum ever regaining her British citizenship, As they see it, it's a fitting punishment for the crime of aligning herself with a terrorist group that would seek to destroy the British state as we know it. Others, however, are more sceptical about the threat that she poses. They argue that at her young age, legally a child when she was groomed and delivered to ISIS, then to escape the crowded home she was living in, Like women have for centuries and across cultures, she got married to a man eight years her senior, which is a significant age gap at 15. While her husband was in jail, she stayed with a man who rarely let her leave the house and was rumoured to be supplying arms to ISIS. There are accusations that she stayed with him while knowing what he was doing and sewed suicide vests onto willing bombers. Once her and her husband decided to leave the city that they were living in, they walked for days to find a refugee camp. Both of their children died of starvation, the couple were separated, and Shamima gave birth in the camp to a third child, who also died. It was while pregnant in the camp that the British journalist found her and brought her story to the world. Rather than an outpouring of sympathy, There was an outpouring of anger against Shamima as she was now an adult. 
Although it could be argued she possessed none of the experiences that a normal young woman would have between the ages of 15 and adulthood that would help her mature and shape her personality and worldviews. Her development as a person had been arrested, but it would take someone much more expert in the field to go into the implications of this for her decision making in the past, now and in the future. It seems clear that we have a child who was groomed, sex trafficked, abused and then forced to live in horrible circumstances while grieving the death of her three children. Add to that the interviews that had her splashed all over the front pages of the UK press were done when she was only two days post-birth. Any person who has given birth will tell you two days after the event and with little support is not the time to think about how you present yourself or your case to the world. The only thing anyone should be thinking of or need then is rest, healing and recovery. I suspect the fact that she appeared wearing a large black jilbab and hijab probably did not help the optics. Her flat effect may give some the suspicion that she's not being truthful, whereas to me it looked more like a trauma response. Her comments that she was unfazed by the sight of decapitated heads in a bucket could again be a trauma response, or a tactic to ensure she can survive in a refugee camp with other ISIS brides, wives and children who may not take kindly to any change in her attitude towards the values they still hold dear. Very few of us are in the position to judge what one needs to say and do to survive in a makeshift refugee camp. As if that isn't a sorry enough state of affairs, the documentary uncovers that there were opportunities where there could have been interventions, both before Shamima left Britain and also while she was being trafficked by both British and Canadian authorities. As a child, she was clearly not safeguarded as we would expect. It is puzzling that while there is so much evidence that Shamima is not so much the criminal here as the victim, why some are so angry and adamant that she is an unrepentant terrorist rather than a girl who's had an incredibly harsh life lesson based on the kind of poor decision making that teenagers are known for. Clue to what is really going on here comes from Shamima's husband. When asked about how he got to know her, he says there wasn't much of a person to get to know an incredibly insulting thing to hear from one's intimate partner, and he carries on, she was like a blank page. It is precisely this blankness, her immaturity and lack of belonging and roots that allowed people to project their own uncomfortable feelings onto her, including a love of ISIS or their anger at the atrocities many of us have watched unfold on the news. I do believe that she should be able to come back to Britain and face a trial for the crimes that are alleged against her. Innocent until found guilty is after all meant to be one of the central tenets of British justice. Stripping Shamima of citizenship is a sentence which undermines our justice system. It appears to me that the biggest flaw in Shamima Begum was not having a strong enough sense of self and being too easily swayed by those around her something that many of us suffered from in our less confident younger years and something that makes people vulnerable to all sorts of abuse, neglect and crime. Given that Britain is perpetuating her lack of belonging by essentially exiling her like some 
medieval wrongdoer without proper trial, this begs the question, are we not just punishing her, but also deny her the chance of rehabilitation, furthering that sense of non-belonging that was possibly a factor in the start of this saga? If so, does increasing that othering do any good for anyone? Are we leaving her in limbo so we can focus our ire on her whenever we need to exercise our anger, confusion or fear at international politics we have little ability to change or influence? Will this treatment send a message to British Muslims that although we claim they are our countrymen and women, we are willing to cut them off the moment they don't conform and therefore increase their sense of alienation, essentially feeding the beast that is extremism. There is much speculation about how much Shamima's skin colour and religion are part of the anger against her. I do not know of any white ISIS brides who we can use as a comparison, but probably the closest case is that of Patty Hearst. Patricia Campbell Hearst was a teenage American heiress who was kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Army, held captive, abused, tortured, raped and then forced to take part in bank robberies and other terrorist activity. Hearst was eventually sentenced to 35 years and the people who kidnapped her ate for her kidnap, although they did have sentences for other charges. It is a flawed comparison given the different time and the fact that Hearst was initially taken by force. Shamima was groomed, but as a society that is only just starting to come to terms with the existence of psychologically coercive control, this does not appear to be a factor in some people's assessment. Hearst also came from a much wealthier background and was part of what could have been considered the elite privileges Begum cannot claim. However, so strong is the myth of individual responsibility in the great man theory of history that in people's imaginations, others can always rise to the Herculean task of defeating the ancient rooted structural inequalities around them. How was Hearst treated? Her sentence was reduced and she was eventually pardoned, regaining all her civil rights. After her release from jail, she went on to marry, have children and is reported to be active in charity work. It is still too early in Shamima's story to tell if her life may be able to establish itself again in Britain as Patricia has done in America, but it's interesting that once Hearst moved from kidnap victim to bank robber, complete with iconic photo, the attitude of the American public hardened. It is a testament to the power of images. The picture of Hearst in front of the Symbionese Liberation Army logo holding a machine gun is indelibly marked on the minds of a generation, and our younger one may always think of Begum, swathed head to toe in voluminous black, sitting in a dusty camp, even though she has obviously made an effort to now appear more Western in interviews, like coloured shirt, glasses, baseball cap, hair and shoulders on show. While the comparison of Hearst to Begum is not completely flush, they both illustrate that when the heat of a terrorist moment is going through its slow dissipation, an area that consistently holds with the patriarchal conceit our culture is built on is that to be a woman and have others accept your victimhood, one has to conform to a strict set of rules that others impose on you, regardless of what you have to do in the moment to survive. 
Remarkably, still to this day, how a woman looks, how she dresses, is fundamental to how much a victim she is allowed to be. It is a straight line from the rape victim who's told she's asking for it because she wore a short skirt to the woman who is shunned and spat at because she chooses a veil. They are essentially just different sides of the same coin. Once publicly marked, when is marked forever, with the shame of having not conformed to the prevailing victim stereotype. It appears that people then become angry at you because they only have a finite amount of sympathy and compassion at their disposal, and these women have been caught in the act trying to sneak it away from others like a thief in the night. Hearst, however, did find some compassion in America through Carter and Clinton, her full pardon being one of Clinton's last acts as president in 2001, 27 years after her original kidnapping. For the moment, it remains to be seen if Britain has enough compassion to allow Shamima to return home and face the justice system here, rather than the limbo punishment without trial that we have left her in. You have been listening to True Crime Fiction, the podcast that is feeding your addiction to all things crime. You can find our website at true-crime-fiction.com, on Twitter at true underscore crime underscore fic, on Facebook and Instagram as True Crime Fiction. Please rate and review on the podcast app of your choice. Music is by Kitty Kitty Meow Meow.